This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, A Shade of Darkness, and the author is J.A. Clausen. And Janice joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Janice. Hi, how are you? Great to have you with us. This is a quite a unique uh, group of characters because you're mixing pirates, which is fascinating to most people, with mm-hmm. vampires, which are fascinating to most people, and of course, uh, a paranormal love involving vampires. We'll find out more about the details of this, but before we get into the characters and uh, this plot. Tell us about yourself, Janice. Uh, how did this all come about? What's some, you know, tell us a little bit about your background. Um, I just I uh, learned to read when I was like in grade one, and I just love to read, and I'm a voracious reader. So I was just reading all the time, and then I thought when I was older, I thought, hmm, I could I could write a book, but I could I never. Um, it took me a while. Like I just thought, oh no way, I can do that. But I'm, and then. My son, my oldest son, I was always telling them that I would like to write a book as well. And he said, oh, come on, Mom, I know you can do it. And he just kept pushing me and pushing me. And finally, I just sat down and started to to write the book. So, Well, you could write a book about many different things, obviously. Fiction, it mm-hmm. could take you all different kinds of places. But you chose to go down the road in the life of a pirate, but as well with very, uh, I don't know what to call vampires, except uh, obviously uh, it's uh, the real strict stretch for of fiction, but at the same time, uh, very, very, is the word alluring to people? For some reason, they're, you know, this mystical power and this, vampires seem to capture the imagination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've always liked the paranormal. So, yeah, and I've always, I grew up liking vampire movies and, and books as well. So, um, and then I wanted to give it, um, like, I like romances, and I like pirates, because of Johnny Depp and his pirate character. So I thought, well, I'll just mix the two together and come up with a vampire pirate. <laughs> and thus, a shade of darkness. Well, yep. let's learn about some of the characters. Let's... I guess we'll start with, is it Bronwyn? Bronwyn? Yeah. Yep. Tell us about Bronwyn. She's kind of your alter ego. Is that really true? Yes, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's okay. um, a successful author, and she um, wants to write her second book, and she decides that she wants to um, go on a working holiday, do research while she's on her holiday, and um, she wanted to always wanted to go to the Caribbean, so she thought, well, there's a lot of pirates 
places or old haunts in the Caribbean area. So she thought she'd just go down there and and do some research. And while she's down there, she runs into a very unlikely character, Vince, who is a pirate vampire. So, um, and then and a very good-looking one, right? I mean, she's kind of yeah. captivated by him. Yes, and he's. And he is captivated by her as well. Something lures him to her. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and um, they meet, and he entices her into having an affair with him and, and fall in love. <laughs> so, yeah. And the, the, really the rest of the story is when a vampire bites you and drinks your blood, you become one. So, yeah, and then she's living through the process of becoming one and and how to live being one. She teaches her and stuff, so, yeah. I mean, it sounds kind of gory. <laughs> this is not, <laughs> yeah. this, this book is not meant for the youth. This is an no. adult book, right? Yes, it's definitely yeah. adult, and there's a lot of steamy parts in it as well, so... It's for um, adult women who like steamy fantasy type reading. <laughs> so yeah. But this one, yeah. this one though, you know, you always think of vampires. You always think of evil. You think of you know, obviously, uh, uh, deception and control. But this has got a little <laughs> twist, doesn't it? Yeah, he's he's um he's a nice guy that was turned into <laughs> a vampire, and he decided that he was going to be a nice guy instead of a bad guy, I guess. <laughs> so Vince, the nice guy vampire. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, don't hey, forget pirate. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's right. He's the nice vampire pirate, <laughs> and he's even a nice pirate because pirates usually aren't very nice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, he he just lived so long that he wanted something different. Wanted to be Okay, when you say he's lived so long, uh, you know, how long has he lived? Um in, in 1735 he became a vampire, so Ah. Uh, and he was about Is that right at the be- Is that right at the beginning of the book we learn about him being seduced? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. what's her name that seduces him? Xenia. Xenia. Now, mm-hmm. she's a bad vampire. I mean, she's pretty she's evil. Bad. Yeah, she's the bad one. She yeah. is the bad one. She she wants to control everybody. Yeah. And she finds out about Bronwyn and Vince, and she doesn't like it. Oh, yes. Because she wants Vince for herself. Yes. She wants him back. He had left her, and now she wants him back. So, is this a real uh, different kind of approach when you when you're in this whole realm of vampires? And of course, the vampire makes you one of his or her own. Is it possible to get away from the clutches of that vampire, or is this just of your making? I don't know. 
<laughs> you don't know. <laughs> I, I'm thinking, yeah, if you if you want to get away and you love someone enough to to do it, then you've got the will and the power to do okay. it. Okay. Yeah, the power <laughs> of love, then, is a part of this, huh? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's certainly a great theme that women love, and probably men should love it too. The power of love. Mm -hmm. So this is a great love story. As you say also, it's got steamy parts. It's not for the youth or kids, yep. but it is a real twist and has, uh, well, you take us to some beautiful places too, don't you? Because that's kind of where you'd like to go. Yeah. Yeah, I did a lot of research on the places, and I, I would like to be visit those places someday. So, yeah, I love the, the sun, the hot sun, and the beautiful water, and yeah. So. So we're talking about the Caribbean and the Florida Keys, that that whole area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Someday. All right, well, who else is, a, is an important character in this book? Who else? Um, there's just the three, really, the three of them. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I didn't have a lot of characters. Just so, wanted to... So what is Zenia up to? What What is her... I mean, what's the bottom line plot here, the... The conflict. What, tell us about that between Zenia and, of course, Vince and, and Brownwin. I mean, what what are we dealing with? It, it's just that he she had got he had gotten away from her, and she never like she didn't let him go. He got away from her, and she finds out that he's back in her territory or whatever, and that he's made this other vampire and. She doesn't like it, like, and she finds out that, mm -hmm. that Bronwyn is a beautiful woman or whatever as well, and and she doesn't want like that competition and stuff. So she's going to try to eliminate her competition and get Vince back. Yeah, it sounds like a showdown. Yeah. Yeah. You always got to have a have a bad guy in the movie and or in the book and. So, yeah. <laughs> so, Vince is going to save the day. You're going to have uh, quite a conflict between Vince and Xenia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Vince comes and rescues Bronwyn, and then um, he gets captured himself, and then he does the whatever he can to get away. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So this is leading to more books, it sounds like. Uh, you're already into your second book, and your character, what, who are the characters in the second book? Oh, there's going to be a whole bunch of characters in the second book. Xenia is the main character, and it's how she became evil. So we get to see how she became evil and what she was and how she, why she was that way with Vince and stuff. So, yeah, and another character is her, her maker. So, yeah, and then a whole bunch of other characters are involved in this. A whole book. bunch of new characters. What's, what's the title of that new book? 
Um, it's called A Shade of Darkness, Xenia's Story. Ah, so you're going to continue on with the main title, A Shade of Darkness, but this one is yep. Xenia's Story. So, uh, so what's your advice to folks who want to write the book? I mean, you, it took you 20 years to write it? Is that yeah, probably. Correct? 20 years. The, so what's your... Um, just if you want to write a book, just keep at it and say that you can do this. Like you can do anything you set your mind to. So all you got to do, you just got to keep telling yourself you can do this. And that it helps when somebody else is there behind you, pushing you into mm -hmm. doing it. But yeah. How much uh, time did you have to spend on research before you really got into the, the you know, the characters and the plot in, in a very uh, detailed way? Um, well, I actually started to write the book before I did the research, and as I went along, I researched it. So I might have did it backwards, I don't know, but that's just the way I did it. Mm-hmm. Well, it all worked out, but there is uh, a lot of uh, research sometimes required to get the settings right and to get the uh, characters right. Mm -hmm. But then the characters seem to take on, a, take on a life of their own. Is that what happened? Yes, definitely. Yes, I was just, um, my son kept pushing me, and then all of a sudden it was like halfway through the book. I didn't need that anymore. I wanted to see how my book was going to end and so it was like oh now i you know gotta finish this thing so i can see how it's gonna end like, gonna yeah end. so so did the ending surprise you yeah i think so like it it just took it turns and twists through the whole thing like it wasn't and i wasn't sure exactly how it was going to end but when i got there mm -hmm. then i knew it was the end so, oh that's always yeah. fascinating me with fiction writers, how that seems to be a general explanation of how, you know, the books uh, develop and the characters develop and and it just takes on a life of its own. Well, Janice, uh, a lot of people say it's an easy read. It's just a page turner. Yeah, um, I think it would be a good uh, holiday book to buy because you could get it read over the holidays. So, yeah. Great stocking stuffer. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> yep. Well, congratulations. Congratulations, Janice. Her book, A Shade of Darkness. Uh, tell us how to get your book. Um, you can buy it on Amazon.com, um, Kindle, uh, Kobo. For now, anyway, I'm hoping I can uh, branch it out more and, and go to the bookstores and stuff. You can go to the bookstore and buy it, so... Great. Well, thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you very much. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station.
Yes, why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage, connectwithjulianainmedia.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Sweatshops in Paradise, a true story of slavery in modern America, and the author is Virginia Lynn Sudbury, and Virginia joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Virginia. Hello, Steve. How are you? Well, this is an issue that nobody likes to recognize and talk about. It's like, well, that happened, you know, that slavery thing, that happened way long ago, and slavery today in business, but it's really going on all over the world, isn't it? It is, it is, and I think that the difference we had, when we hear slavery, at least in American history, in American history context, we think of a traditional, you know, what happened in our, in our South, and it's very, very different right. from that because it's so invisible right now. Um, we see people every day that are probably being trafficked. They're brought in by family members to work in restaurants and, uh, in, and obviously in our, our fields, and we just don't see it, and we just don't recognize it for what it, what it might be. But you know this firsthand because you were the lead attorney for garment factory workers in American Samoa, and, well, it turned into, uh, it looks like, quite a battle that you had, and you're still battling, aren't you? We are still battling. Uh, fortunately, we've left the physicality behind, <laughs> and we're battling just in court and um, to get my clients, to get our clients paid, obviously, but... Um, it did start it start on uh, the island of Tutuila in the territory of American Samoa as just what looked like a wage claim. So just a wage claim. People weren't paid what they were promised, but as you exactly. dug into it, you found out, I, I guess, the, the real horror of the whole thing. That's exactly true. I really did think it was just a wage claim. Again, I had been primarily doing um, family law, a smattering of some other kinds of law, but uh, when, the, when the first nine ladies came to our office, we had no idea that it was something other than just them getting them paid, the wages that they had contracted for. And then as we visited them, as we met more, remember, nine workers came to us first, but there was about there were a total of about 300 workers at the garment factory. 
and uh, most of them were young women, most of them from Vietnam. There were probably 20, 25 Chinese gentlemen that had been, that had been brought in from China as well. And if I can go ahead, the way they came onto the island was, was somewhat unusual. The government of Vietnam runs, uh, in, 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 the government of Vietnam had two companies. One was called International Manpower Supply and one was called Tourism Company 12. And those are recruiting companies. And they hired a, a Korean gentleman named Kilsu Lee, and we'll call him the bad man. And he went through these management companies in Vietnam and recruited several hundred workers to come over and labor in this garment factory in American Samoa. And he chose his, his locale wisely. American Samoa is uh, a bit of a melting pot. Obviously, there's Polynesian, um, Fijian, Tongan people there, but there's also Japanese, Chinese, um, and uh, Filipino, but there's no Vietnamese. So when the Vietnamese ladies came over and wanted to reach out and find out whether what they were experiencing was what they had bargained for, there was nowhere to go. They were completely disenfranchised because no one spoke Vietnamese on the island. So they were really in a spot. Hmm. So basically, people could get away with anything they wanted to get away with. They could, under the right auspices. And when Kilsu Lee contracted with the American Samoa government for the garment factory to operate the garment factory there in the island, um, the government was supposed to have imposed a bond. When you or I go to uh, American Samoa, we have to post a bond equal to uh, our return airfare. So we can guarantee that, you know, the government can guarantee we're not going to become a, a, you know, a burdensome to them. Well, they waived mm -hmm. the bond. They waived the bond for all those women. So when they, they gave Kilsu Lee an enormous financial break in, in, in ease to bring the workers over to, to the island. So they, they, had already, they had already started being complacent. And I think that that relates to today's, our world, in that we look the other way. Well, it must be good for business. We're going to bring all these workers in. Well, we just, again, mm -hmm. like you said, have to scratch the surface a little bit, and we find out it's something very different than how it appeared. So tell us about this rampant abuse of these women, uh, not only civil injustices, but this abuse, and literally it was imprisonment. It wasn't a job opportunity. <laughs> yeah, I guess it all depends on where you're standing, but no, it didn't look like a job <laughs> opportunity to me. <laughs> Right. Uh, they were brought. They were brought over. They were, you know, as advertised. Oh, you're going to go to America. You know, streets paved with gold and what have you. Um, they had a, a swimming pool. There was a, an Olympic-sized swimming pool, uh, and it was supposed to be, you know, a gorgeous tropical island and what have you. And the island is in fact gorgeous if you look up, but if you look down, you see things that aren't so gorgeous. And one of them was the the actual garment factory barracks, and that's what it was called. It was a barracks. It was a huge mm -hmm. compound surrounded by a barbed wire fence, and there was a little guard house. You had to pass through and submit to the guard when you came in or left. The women were housed in 36 to a room. Uh, they slept on foam, you know, just like a four-inch piece of foam, um, like bunk beds on the walls, and that was also right there on the compound. There was a cafeteria and uh, there was, in fact, a, a, a swimming pool. And I saw the swimming pool, and instead of being filled with water, the swimming pool was filled with toads. Mm. 
I'm not exaggerating this, which is like a foot of toads in the bottom of this. Po- wow. It was, it was such a metaphorical hit. <laughs> I was just, it was just hideous. But um, again, the place was just, it was just awful. The conditions were horrible. They received about um, one chicken per day for all 300 of them. And they mostly ate soup and broth and, and similar things to that. They lost considerable weight. A number of the women stopped having their periods. They became very malnourished. Um, they just weren't being, they did, in addition to not being paid money so they could, couldn't go out and buy anything, they literally were being um, deprived of food. And, it, and I do want to make one note here, and I do want to thank, and it's very important, the, a number of the, the American Samoan locals, both Samoan and Palangi, uh, non-Samoan, when, when the ladies realized that they didn't have food and they, they, they had no way, they had no mechanism to eat and they had no mechanism to earn money, they reached out, they would stand outside stores and they would have this little sweaty piece of paper in their hands, and it would say, it was someone who had written it in English for them, and it said, can I come to your house and, um, you know, tend your kids, rake your leaves, fix your meals. And a number of them hooked up with what my co-counsel and I called safe houses. And so whenever something really bad would happen at the factories, they would scatter off to the far reaches of the island with their safe homes, where they were fed and protected. It was just a... It was one of those little gems you find in in the grass on Easter. It was wonderful. That was the good part. The rest was bad. So, so the the neglect of this really tragic situation beyond comprehension. Even in you describing it, it's uh, well, it was prison for these women. I mean, how how. Did you ever get to the bottom why the American Samoa government just neglected this whole thing and just kind of turned its back on it? You know, that's the probably the $64,000 question. I I have my suspicions. I believe it's because well, I think it was a number of a perfect storm of bad factors. I think that they they had been a little resentful of our office when I first started a legal services firm to help victims of domestic violence because there was a real backlash that there could even be something perceived as domestic violence on the island. Okay, so we've got a cultural difference imposed mm-hmm. initially. But secondly, it was it was it was a it was a black eye to the government. When um, when we got involved in this lawsuit, remember we went to court probably once a month for 14 months, which is a lot for any case. We always went in on um, enforcement actions against Kilsuli and against the factory. Pay my people. Let my people, let my ladies out. Don't imprison them. Let, don't hit them. Don't spy on them in the showers. Obviously, feed them better and so forth. And so every single time we went to court, we won. And every time we went to court, the paper would report it. So the island was, the population was very aware of, of exactly what was going on with the case. And I think that really, really made the government mad because they weren't doing anything. You have these two little, you know, two lawyers trying to make sure that labor laws are being followed. I mean, it wasn't our job to do that. It was the government's job. And I think that they had, because they had, we didn't know this then, but they had waived the bond for the workers, and I think they just didn't want to, um, you know, get any, touch it. They just didn't want to. Um, one of the most vexing and horrible, wasn't even vexing, it was, 
it was life-changing. Um, a horrible event that happened is, remember, every time we went to court, somebody had to get on the stand. One of my work, one of our workers had to get on the stand and testify, which was huge, because then they had to go back to the compound and be subject to all this abuse by Kusuli and his minions. And we finally, out of the 300, we found a woman, and her name was Zung, and she um, was our, she had learned enough English to, to help translate. And again, remember, nobody spoke Vietnamese. And also remember that we had Vietnamese, Samoan, um, English, Chinese, and Korean languages in this, in this lawsuit. So every time we went to court, we had to attempt to have all those five languages translated, which was <laughs> just a nightmare. It was oh, horrible. Goodness. So, so we finally decided on Zoom as being our translator and a woman named Na as being our lead plaintiff, which means she would be the face of the class action shoot. She, she was, it's Na V. Daiwusa is the name of the lawsuit. Mm-hmm. Well, a few, a few minutes before, or a few months before um, we were to go to trial in January of 2001, in August of 2000, the girl, the Na and Zoom were down at the beach and enjoying one of the tide pools and gearing up for trial and gearing up for all this stress that was in their lives and coming. And a big wave came over the tide pool and swept them out to sea, and they were drowned. So we what? lost oh our tra- our translator, our one translator, and our name plaintiff. So morale, obviously, I mean, plummet. I mean, plummeted. There was just if this badness could happen to us, and I couldn't keep him safe. I couldn't. I could have him. So we pursued, and we plotted on, and we continued on our path. And then three months later, or two months later in November, uh, right after Thanksgiving of 2000, uh, they had a shortage of material at the factory, and Kilsu Lee ordered the Samoan employees, there was about 30 of them, he ordered the Samoan employees to beat up the Vietnamese. So they did. And, And one of my ladies had her eye gouged out with a, PVC pipe, a sharpened PVC pipe, but a couple others lost their hearing. Everybody was bruised and everybody was scratched and everybody was poked with them. It was a sewing, there was scissors everywhere. It was just a, a horrible, horrible, horrible event. And that's when the New York Times heard about it and did an article and again came right back to Krista and I. It was our fault this had happened. Um, we got threats from the government. We got we got called in front of the Congress to testify. I mean, it was horrible. This mm. was in no way their fault, as they thought it was, or Kilsu Lee's fault, for that matter. No, he was never prosecuted for this by the, United, the American Samoan government, never prosecuted. And um, so we were, obviously, when we went into trial, we were our, our morale was very low, and we were very hopeless and despondent. Human trafficking is everywhere. It's you know this is just the tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. I think it is, and I think it's a it's a more visible tip in a less visible in one way because American Samoa is so far away. It's so far flung. It's five thousand miles away. We're not going to go there. We don't visit. We don't see it. But one of the most horrible parts to this, Steve, is that when the workers were one of the duties that the workers did when they sewed was that they would receive these garments in from other from countries in um, the east, you know, on the Pacific Rim. They would be mostly assembled, and what our ladies did was sew Made in America tags in them. So you can't, you, it was a mostly constructed mm. garment that had these little finishing touches, a hem, a cuff, 
and a, and, a, and a label sewn in on American territorial soil, which, you know, it, it, it conveyed to me as a buyer in the store, oh, this is made with, you know, attendance to our labor laws. These people aren't right. abused. These people right. aren't trafficked. So it was just such a big, just, just a big joke. When we did go to, when we did finally go to um, trial, it took five weeks. It was in January of 2001. It was the longest trial at that point in the history of the uh, territory, I understand. And um, after we finished, we, the court said, we'll take it under advisement and left the bench. And we did not get a decision for 14 months. So my ladies were stuck there and couldn't leave and didn't know what to do and were very unhappy and wanted to see their mothers and I wanted to leave and it was just it was just a horrible situation. A few days after the trial ended though is when the, one of the best things ever that happened and the government of the uh, United States government the our department of justice swooped in. <laughs> Attorneys and FBI agents swooped onto the island, arrested Kilsu Lee, incarcerated him in Hawaii and offered status, a certain status to all the uh, trafficked victims to come into the United States and apply for the T visa and then eventually become United States citizens. So all but about 90 of the workers are now in the United States. A number of them have um, families. Quinn, the woman who lost her eye, is in Honolulu running her own business. Um, a number of the ladies now are, are citizens and voted in the last election. It it ended so wonderfully in that one sense for them. Now, 14 months later, when we did get our decision, it was resoundingly in our favor. We received $3.5 million from jointly and severally from Kilsu Lee and from the Vietnamese management companies. We have never seen a penny. Vietnam is denying wow. that they owe us any mm. money. That they didn't do anything wrong, certainly how could they know, on and on. Kilsu Lee has since been convicted of a number of involuntary servitude and money laundering charges, and he's spending the rest of his days in a federal penitentiary. So we do seek recompense for our clients. My clients worked for a number of <laughs> years without any kind of wages, and mm -hmm. we do seek that still. Well, it's an amazing story, and it's not <laughs> fiction, everyone. This is you know, this is reality, and there are sweatshops in paradise. The title of this book, A True Story of Slavery in Modern America, and we've been listening to Virginia Lynn Sudbury, the author of Virginia. Tell us how to get your book. Oh, well, I will. You can get on, um, get it through Barnes & Noble or through Amazon online. Just type in my name or Sweatshops in Paradise. And if you um, are interested, you can also contact me directly. And my website is, or my address is Virginia at loves.biz. And that's L-O-V as in Virginia, S as in Sudbury, dot B as in boy, I, Z as in zebra. And that's my website or that's my um, email address. You're, if you do want to contact me and purchase a book for me, I'll sign it and you know, inscribe it for you. Oh, great. But most importantly, let's be aware. Let's watch in our lives. Is something too cheap? Is something too good to be true? Does somebody who is serving us at a, mm -hmm. at a, a sushi restaurant look furtively behind them? Do they have their passport? You know, let's just mm -hmm. be a little more aware. I think that's the only way going forth we can at least, um, at least slow this down. Never going to end, but we Virginia, need to slow it down. 
Virginia, thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, Mr. Steve. Have a fabulous day. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. Today we discover a book titled Finding Eve, the author Jill Huckleberry. Now welcome her to the show. Welcome, Jill. Thank you. Glad to be here. 180 pages. This is a novel. When was it set? What is the time frame this novel takes place? This is set during the French Revolution. French Revolution, so 20, 30 years ago at least. <laughs> a little bit. Tell me about it. How did you get motivated to write this? What stirred your interest in setting a book in that time frame or setting a story in that time frame, and how did it come about? Actually, it's going to be several books if I have my way about it, and uh, it was originally going to be uh, a, one novel that contained several short stories. But this particular story just kind of had a life of its own and and uh, just expanded and expanded and expanded and became its own, its own novel. And who are your main characters in this book? My main characters are Anna and Catherine, um, but they are actually, I guess I should start at the beginning. The, uh, the, the gist of the entire saga will be the fact that Eve, as in Adam and Eve, was not tempted by forbidden fruit. She was tempted by Lilith, who was Adam's first wife, according to the Jewish tradition. Really? And, um, yes, and so their love affair becomes a God finds out about it, let's say that, and um, he curses the, the two women to find each other and lose each other throughout time. So in every, in every lifetime, the two women find each other and they get pulled apart until they can break the curse. Well, that's certainly an unusual premise. I had not heard of that story in Jewish history or folklore. Who do you think this book's going to appeal to, and why? Well, it's it's uh, it's a lesbian novel. It's it's um, it's about two women that are are, are forever entwined um, until they can break the curse. Um, so uh, it will obviously. I'm hoping it will appeal to that that genre. But um, it, it's a great love story, and. Um, and it continues on and on, so uh, hopefully it will appeal to... I've had uh, lots of, of my friends that aren't gay like it a lot, so hopefully it will appeal to masses. So on many levels, this should have a mass appeal then. Yes, I mean, that's, that, well, of course that's the goal. 
and writing this book, describe the process. You are not an author by trade, at least haven't been. No. But you've taken up the pen and attacked this major project of 180 pages. Yeah, I'm a carpenter. I'm actually a project manager for a, a, a business here in St. Louis. Um, and I've, I've written all my life, but usually poetry, um, that kind of thing, just shorter, shorter things. This this concept has been in my mind for a long time, and this book in particular took about three years to write because I, I, I'm kind of a mood writer. I write when I when I feel like it, and sometimes I can take like six months off. But um, if the career takes off, hopefully I will I will write every day for hours and be very happy about it. In your book, are there scenes that might gravitate towards the production of a movie, perhaps? Are there action scenes, or is it more dialogue and emotion-driven? Oh, no. Uh, it's, uh, it, it goes back and forth between uh, Paris um, during the French Revolution, which is obviously a very dangerous time, and uh, it was also a very... Mm, the French Revolution brought, up, brought about uh, the women's movement for the first time, and... Um, at that point, gays were, were, were persecuted. One scene in particular that I would love to see in movie form is the two women actually had been separated for a while, and they, they reconnect on accident, uh, but it's in a it's at a mass ball, and the theme is air, fire, and water, the elements at that point. And um, the costumes that I described in, in that scene, uh, I would love to see that reenacted in film. That would be, that would be my, my all-time favorite thing. And the scenes and character that are in this book, you are hoping to carry them on into other uh, projects. Oh yes, uh, the two characters. I mean, it's it's always Eve and Lilith that, that uh, are reincarnated in another lifetime. They they take on uh, completely different roles, uh, completely different uh, looks. Um, there's there's some similarities. Uh, one character has blue eyes, and one character has green eyes, um, and that will carry out. But um, other than that, there's no physical similarities, um, and the characters are completely different. The next book is actually set during the Industrial Revolution, and one of the characters is uh, going to uh, work as a man uh, to support her family. She's she's um, you know doesn't have hips or large breasts, so she can dress like a man and 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 work and support her family because her father is an alcoholic and can't do it. So she takes on that role. Do you do a lot of historical research in order to get the times and settings correct? I, I, I do my best. Um, the <laughs> Wikipedia is fantastic. Let me just, <laughs> let me just get a, a, a plug for Wikipedia because I've, I've gotten a lot of my information through there. Um, uh, yeah, the, the next book is actually set, uh, like I said, in the Industrial Revolution, and it's uh, based upon a, a bridge that they were building in Scotland, and it's the first steel structure that was built in Europe. So I've had to do a lot of research on that, yes. This book, is it similar to other books in the marketplace, or would you, as an author, Not like to knowledge. think it's different? Yes. No, not, um, no, and, and that's kind of why I, I, I grasped onto the concept, it was because it, I felt like it was uh, fairly original. What sets it apart? I think... The, the time factor, the, there's lots of sagas, you know, like the, the Harry Potter and Twilight, that kind of thing. Um, but this this goes throughout time. All These two characters are going to meet in, in different lifetimes. And I could be wrong, but I don't think anybody else has, has ever done that. Well, I personally am not aware of any novel that's taken this twist and put it into a storyline. Any controversial parts of this book? 
aside from the fact that it's a, it's a, a, a lesbian writing, no. I mean, um, I I kind of expected Westboro Church to be camped out on my front lawn um, when I published because I I, I make Ava or, or Eva a lesbian. So, but that hasn't happened yet. Thank goodness. I think that a lot of people would have issues with with lesbian writing, but um, I feel bad for them. <laughs> Small minded. How would you introduce this to someone that doesn't know of your writing? Pretty much just like uh, what I had said earlier is that uh, the, the concept is um, Eve and Lilith fall in love and God curses them to uh, find each other and lose each other throughout time. Any underlying themes that you, you wanted to highlight in the writing of this book? Not, mm, no, I, mean, I think the, the book is pretty pretty much uh, forthcoming. The, I, had, I had issues actually all my, my life as a, a child being raised as a Southern Baptist and, and not being accepted because I was gay. And I would love for this book to um, appeal to younger women just so that they can feel like they're they're not alone, I guess. Yes. And was that the challenging part of writing this book? The challenging part of writing this book was publishing it. Okay. Uh, the, the writing itself came, like I said, it came, came it, it flows out of me when it wants to, and uh, it's a, it was a harder process to, to write it than I thought, just because I, it, it came in fits and starts, but um, writing itself was, was not really a challenge, I suppose. Anything that we've left out on the characters that you might want to highlight? Both characters are beautiful in their own way. They um, one is, an, is the daughter of an aristocrat and spoiled rotten, and the other one has been raised on a on a farm. And uh, the aristocrat's father buys the farm, and the uh, the farmer's daughter be, uh, becomes her maidservant. And so they they clash a little bit in the beginning, and they fall in love quite beautifully. And um, their love is eternal. Thank you, Joe, for visiting with us and sharing the information about the story behind your book and the historical references that you've made. Again, the title is Finding Eve, a novel by Jill Huckleberry. Thank you, Jill, for joining us today. My pleasure. Jill, tell our listeners, where can we get copies of your book? Uh, it's available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And do you also have a website by any chance? Yeah, I am actually working on that right now. It should be up and running, uh, I would say, within a week. So if they do a search under Jill Huckleberry, this book will come up and also anything else you're working on in the future. Correct, yes. Very good. For iUniverse, this is J. Douglas Barker. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.